This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. This is Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network together with uh, Tony Prescott and our guest Alex Kachelnik. And Alex is a biologist who has been studying in great detail the extraordinary, also cognitive capabilities of a range of animals, in particular birds. So, so Alex, wh- why do you think birds are a good target species to study to understand animal cognition? Well, as in many of these things, uh, some of these things have history more than real logical explanation. I mean, it's uh, one starts in in a system and keeps going, <laughs> but um, in reality, birds have certain good properties from the point of view of studying behavior in the kind that the, the style that I'm interested in because A, they are diurnal and so you can study them in daytime and they're very visible. So if you want to study them in the field, you can see what they are doing as opposed to seeing rats, which you have to go down into the sewage and um, studying them at dark or so uh, it's, it's much more uh, complex. So and birds have a wealth of stereotype behavior which has occasionally been misinterpreted, very often been misinterpreted as implying lack of the capability for flexible behavior. And when in fact having the ability to do certain things without having learned them doesn't mean that you cannot uh, combine them with uh, innovation and um, uh, new discoveries and cognitively demanding tasks. Mm-hmm. So I started, I guess, uh, well, after my, if I, if I ignore my, my very early years, um, I started working on, on birds because I could look at them both in the field and in the lab. Um, I could create conditions for relatively simple uh, interfaces. They don't use... Although they use more than ghosts believe, they don't use smell as much as mammals. It doesn't mean that they don't use olfactory cues, but they are less olfactory than mammals, meaning that visual stimuli, which we can easily understand and program, can be kind of easily be implemented in the laboratory. Mm-hmm. So, and they they have a, a life cycle, regular life cycle in the right. wild. But now you also. Uh, placed placed that study of cognition in a very clear evolutionary perspective, right? So you really see that that cognition evolved to actually address a very specific set of features of the interaction with the world, which is that um, the kinds of problems we encounter to survive might come in different qualities. So, so what's the distinction that you see there? Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I I see myself fundamentally as a biologist, and uh, and I see cognition as yet another uh, part of the toolkit of the animal to adjust to its environment. In a sense, it's not different from the the way Herbert Simon conceived the understanding of the of the mind. I mean, you have you know the famous uh, metaphor of the scissors where. Um, you have to you have the two blades to make the scissor cut, and then if you think of understanding the mind without understanding the environment in which it evolves, not knowing which problems the mind has evolved to solve, it's going to be a handicap for you to understand the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, the mind 
um, and I use a term very loosely here, but they say the product of cognition in general, has not evolved to do the fanciest possible calculations or, or to, um, uh, to just give joy to either observers or the, the owners of those minds. It has evolved because it's a good way to solve problems. And the problems that has evolved are determined by natural selection. Mm -hmm. So you try to link both and um, evolve towards um, a better understanding. Right. But it could also be the case that in evolution, let's say, you can get away with pre-wiring stereotype behaviors for, for problems that from, from at an evolutionary <coughs> time scale are constant. Let's say to write yourself against gravity might be something you could just pre-wire because gravity doesn't change so rapidly. Uh, while finding the fridge to get a beer might be a problem for which you might want to have at least to some extent cognitive capabilities, right? Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. In, in the area of decision-making, there is a very uh, crucial distinction between uh, what is normally understood as risk and what is understood as uh, uncertainty or 90 and uncertainty. In the cases of risk, you know the probabilities of events, and although the world is inherently stochastic, that is, you cannot predict exactly the consequences of your actions, you know the probability distributions around yourself. In the case of uncertainty, you, don't, you may not even know the nature of the problem very well. You don't know the probabilities of each part of the problem. And in evolutionary sense, things that for the individual are a case of uncertainty, for evolution may be a case of risk. And that um, in one lifespan, you may not know the probability that, say, it's going to be warm in May if you are born in February, for example. But evolutionarily speaking, you can know that because that's encoded in your genome through the success of your ancestry. Right. And but now, so the first, the first model animal that you presented to us was um, the siskins, right? So uh, you were look at this problem of, of mate selection in siskins and you, you saw this as an example of, of also how ambiguous it is to think about cognition as necessarily helping you in, in, in survival. Right, so what, what was the message of these experiments with, with these siskins? Well, this was, I was referring to experiments done by the group of uh, Senar, Juan Carlos Senar, here in Barcelona. And uh, what they did was to study these little birds in which um, some aspects of female mate choice are very well understood. The females prefer males which have uh, an enhanced uh, yellow bar in their wings. And what they did was to ask the question, why do the females prefer this? And they tested the animals in the laboratory and they found them that there's a correlation between their ability to solve certain problems, uh, how fast they solved it, and the feature that the females are using to select between them. So as if females are using the yellow bar as a proxy for picking up a male that's going to be good at feeding their young, for example, or at providing their young with uh, good genes for being efficient foragers. Mm. Um, I simply was using their work as an example of the complexities of saying that the male intelligence may evolve through sexual selection, the female role in this, but the female is actually using a characteristic that we don't fully understand mm -hmm. to um, develop their preferences. Right. So, but then, um, on the other hand, uh, that raises the question: Why? Why are not all these? Uh, of, why are not all these siskins 
let's say, uh, developing a big yellow bar, even though they're stupid. Right, because now you, you could easily try to, yes. in that sense, fool. Yeah. You could fool your potential mates. And yes. Why is that not happening with these siskins? Well, that's taking us, your question takes us to a basic issue of the evolution of communication. In communication, you have an emitter and a receiver. Some signal has evolved in the emitter because it's a good way to alter the behavior of the receiver through the receiver's senses. And the question is, uh, it's no question I would, do whatever I, uh, favors me. But, of course, the receiver evolves responding to signals in a way that actually benefits it. And so why would a receiver accept the signal if there's a frequency-dependent issue immediately emerging? If um, too many stupid males had the, the sign for intelligence, then the preference for that clue would disappear in the females, would be selected out, it wouldn't convey information. So you have a constant balance between um, the advantage of the, the psychology of the receiver and the benefit to mm. the emitter. So communication is not about accuracy of conveying information, it's about efficiency of manipulation. And for the receiver, it's efficiency of the coding variables in the emitter that are of use to self. And I was just trying to illustrate um, mm -hmm. a little bit of that. Right, exactly. So, but then uh, the core of your experiments that we're going to talk about later, uh, with, with with a number of of, uh, of birds, uh, bird species, um, it all turns around this issue of problem solving and insight. And and you started with this very classic example of Kohler's uh, chimpanzee experiments. Um, so. Why is that such a critical experiment or such a strong illustration of the kind of paradigm that you're interested in? But um, just to remember, the, these experiments were done in the early 20th century, and the basis was to present the chimps with a novel problem and see how they innovated with instruments around themselves to achieve a solution. And at the time, that was interpreted as evidence for the existence of insight and of mental modeling and trial and error in the mind by the chimps. And I use this as an example of the weakness of our uh, tendency to project the way we think we solve problems into the data we collect from other species. Um, I use as an example of this uh, some work from some of the people of the, the American Behaviorist School, the Skinnerian School, particularly Robert Epstein, who show that if you train pigeons on the components of a task, and one day you offer a problem that they have never faced, but where the different components can be chained together to achieve a solution, the pigeons also did it. Mm -hmm. And of course, this had not been done systematically in the chimps' experiments, but the chimps had their personal experience, which they could do it. And the issue I raised was, if the pigeon does the same as the chimp, should we conclude that none of them is intelligent or that both of them are mm -hmm. and how do we separate them and that was just a springboard mm -hmm. to start designing cases where we see animals solving problems which are novel in the way they are presented but somehow resonate with their experience obviously right. and uh, how could then unravel really what is the task for the organism how mm -hmm. is it doing and this is where we connect with people working with relatively autonomous robots. Right. But now, I, how, how I take your Epstein um, 
example is that uh, it's also Epstein had this for his four equations of, of what he called generative behavior, which are very reminiscent, obviously, of, of also uh, Thorndike's law of effect. And that essentially means that as a learning organism, you're really at the mercy of your environment. Your environment is instructing you about what you have to do. And, and to build a chain, you do have to receive specific reinforcement that tells you, well, A and B belong together and should be executed together. So... Uh, but so that's sort of this this sort of empty the em empty organism uh, notion. But now in, in in your case, if you look at insight, insight might require something like an internal model, internal representation. So where do you do you place your own thinking in between those extremes? Do you do you do you see it as having as relying on internal models, or do you really think that a, that this kind of complex behavior, problem solving behavior that might look like insight, can really be instructed by direct reinforcement from the environment as the behaviorists okay. would have it? Well, <clears throat> there are certain se several aspects to your very complex uh, question. One of them is that a totally instructed organism doesn't really exist. I mean, as, as, as you well know, I mean, we filter the information that the world is giving us. We selectively take particular relations in the world. I mean, we have a selective perception, selection processes of conceptualization. And different species differ in what they filter of their environment and how different in their gaze and then how they look at the world. And uh, as a biologist, I'm very keen on taking that into account. What is it that the organism is actually trying to extract as significant information? On the other hand, the job that learning is doing for the animal if we go back to the notions I mentioned before of risk and uncertainty, what learning is doing is transforming uncertainty into risk. So you, it, you start an animal with not knowing the problem if it's in, other than with what natural selection has actually encoded it for, and evolving by its own experience into actually plugging in the parameters of its real-life uh, circumstances. I mean, what world I am in and um, what are the affordances of the objects around me and what are the, the laws of this, even the social environment in which I'm moving. And that cannot be anticipated by natural selection. So that job is done by, by learning. Mm -hmm. Now, you asked me about the insight. I... I don't want to really define myself as um, it's not the kind of thing you can be for or against. I mean, in a lot of cases, it is very frequent to overinterpret data as demonstrating that this could not be done other than by insight. But in many cases, insight is just labeling something like the animal could not do it and then it did it. And this, uh, this continuity in the data is explained by something miraculous that happened in the animal that we don't understand better by putting a name to it. Mm -hmm. So if we could actually show what mental operations the animal is doing and have some handle experimentally or quantitatively in some kind of way, then I, I'm happy with mentalistic interpretations, mm -hmm. but they have to have a handle. Right, exactly. Let me, let me give an old example with work from uh, Juan Dilius in, in, at that time in Bochum, I think. And um, this was work in the pigeon in which it was on mental rotation. You know, this task in which you have to distinguish, for example, whether a letter or a number is the correct one or is a mirror image of the stimulus. And if you give this task to people and you alter the vertical axis of an image, then it takes longer to actually do it, um, the greater the angle. 
And if you ask individuals why it's how they do it, they tell you that in their minds they are rotating the the object until they see it vertically, and then they can actually take a decision. So uh, Delius did the same experiment, but um, found that the pigeons had no uh, extra time for objects that were rotated with respect to the training um, orientation. And if you did find it, you could conclude and accept that maybe they were using some kind of mental rotation and do further experiments about it. But the fact that you didn't doesn't tell you that they don't have the capability for mental rotation. It tells you that an animal that flies uh, looking at a horizontal world from above has to, and, and looking from different perspective, doesn't have a priority axis like the vertical one and can actually quickly identify images mm -hmm. by the pattern regardless of whether they are rotated. But we can't actually tell what's going on in the mind of the animal. Mm -hmm. so, but I, so, But is your statement there also more that you're saying, look, you want to link to Epstein and this whole tradition behind him, going back to Thorndike and Pavlov, not so much to say, look, I, conceptually I believe in an empty organism, but in our explanations we should keep it as minimal as possible and really ground it in the data we have and not in our anthropomorphic interpretations of this behavior of the animals. That, this is yes. a key point. Yes, absolutely. Right. I think uh, from that point of view, I would place myself in, 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 in the range between the, um, the mystical uh, psychologist and the killjoy behaviorist. Mm. I would right. place myself mm. closer to, to the killjoy than, mm. than to the mystical, but I admit that a lot of the behavior we ourselves observe and collect on our animals, we don't have an algorithmic model to say how does experience translate into these problems. And we are looking at these problems to see if we can build them. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so that, that was more or less my question. But you're saying that the key principle here is, is parsimony. So we look for the simplest explanation of behavior. And a second principle, I guess, is continuity, that we look for things that we see in other animals that might explain this when we see it in in birds but also i mean is, is there not some uh, reason to expect maybe that some of these bird species do have competences that might not exist in many other animals so should we not be a bit more generous in expecting uh, b birds especially ones with larger brains to have some of the abilities that you might only see say in primates Yes, I, I think that's what you say is, is empirically validated already. I mean, we know already that um, many um, problems that uh, others and ourselves and have shown birds to be capable of solving have not yet been shown uh, as being solved by mammalian species, mm -hmm. in, including primates. Right. There's no question that they... Every species has particular competences, and if we create a scale where the yardstick is human ways of doing things, then the closer you are to humans, the, the better you're going to score <laughs> in that right. scale, but that's right. circular. Right. right? So, but the, so the, your, your, your target animal in many of your experiments has been the Caledonian crow. And <clears throat> what makes that animal species so, so special? Well, the New Caledonian crow is, and I'm now including uh, the great apes, is the most intensely dependent tool user among 
uh, non-humans that we know of. Uh, is, uh, they show a, a species-wide tendency to use tools. They use it in nature. It, they fulfill an important part of their ecology. Um, they don't use it in a rigid fashion. We know that it's not just that they have inherited a set of motor patterns. They have um, um, inherited predisposition to apply tools to problems they face. And in some respects, as juveniles, they show um, kind of proto-movements uh, of what is going to be the adult tool use. Mm -hmm. And they do it for something that we might call play, if we saw it in a young human. Uh, but at the same time, they have the capability for cultural transmission so that um, we, we know that they can learn from others to some extent. They have regional variation in the tools that they are using, and that could be connected to a physical culture, although that hasn't been demonstrated yet. So um, uh, all these things make them a very interesting... But a typical example would be that they would take a stick to, to fish, as you described it yourself, for larvae in, in tree, in the, the basque of trees, right? This would be the typical thing, how they would use a tool. Yes, actually, um, local people, non-scientists, knew this for a long time, and Gavin Hunt, from um, working from New Zealand, uh, brought it to the attention of science in, in, in the late uh, 90s and published some uh, very interesting papers, actually, this describing what they do in nature. Um, they, they use different kinds of tools, at least three or four different kinds of tools, five maybe, in depending on how you categorize a kind of mm -hmm. tool, like hooks or straight sticks or blades of um, pandanus uh, plants, that um, in all cases they build themselves and they modify and then they use for extracting food. Uh, we don't know to what extent in nature they are selective of producing tools that are appropriate for a particular problem that they are facing. Mm -hmm. But we know that by taking them to the laboratory and giving them different problems, they can do this. Mm -hmm. They can build tools right. which are appropriate for the problem they have in hand. But now if you say that they have about five tools they would use, yeah. this is like a stick? And I said five categories of, of tools. Categories, sorry, yes. Yes, because they are very different, all of them. But for example, they can use um, uh, segments of a flexible vine um, that they cut with the appropriate length and poke it into holes with the teeth facing backwards so that they can actually rake things out. They can produce hooks by sculpturing twigs at the branching point and so leaving just um, a short segment on one side and a longer one in the other and we don't know, we know in the laboratory but not in nature how these hooks are actually used. They build the most complex, um, that we know of, the most complex tool of any, um, of any animal, really, any vertebrate, if you exclude things like spider webs, um, by actually cutting uh, the edge of blades of, of, of leaves of pandanus trees, which are like, a, uh, these, these leaves are like flat surfaces, and they cut the edge with a particular step shape format so that they are thicker more robust on one side and they taper to the other and they use this for 
extraction purposes, but we don't know, for example, why in some areas they do it and in others they mm -hmm. don't. Uh, whether it is, <clears throat> and also why their shape is different, whether it's functionally different or it's just cultural drift mm -hmm. that leads. That's what I was worried. So, so interested in. So, if we have these different categories of tools, now if you talk about cultural variation. What should I think of, given these categories of tools? What's the cultural variation here? Cultural variation is, for example, in the... Um, this is, again, work by our colleagues in New Zealand, that they uh, they found that the typical pandanus leaves that they produce, in some cases, have a perfectly rectangular uh, shape, which is kind of broad. In others, they have a thin one. And yet, in other places, they have um, step wise one, where they start thick and they end fine, which is a more advanced, more useful tool. In some areas, the three kinds of tools are built, which is, in a sense, a contradiction with the notion that there is a better, there's a best kind of doing it. But definitely what is the case is that the, the predominant kind of pandanus leaf tool is different mm -hmm. in different regions. Right. Okay. Now, geographic variation does not prove culture. Mm -hmm. Sure. It's, but it's, it's, it's an obvious associated yeah. concept. Yeah. And uh, I was wondering, do the um, birds show anticipation? So if they're going to go on a particular kind of foraging trip, will they go and make a tool and take it with them? I mean, and also, do they store tools and reuse them? Well, we, we have shown through uh, the use of cameras um, with some of my colleagues, particularly Christian Roots, who's now in, in Scotland, used to be in Oxford at the time, we managed to um, put cameras on, on birds which are moving freely in the woods and could see some of that. For example, we could see that they could make a tool and take it um, hundreds of meters away somewhere else and use it. But that doesn't give us any evidence that the animal knows what kind of problem is going to face when it arrives and is doing the right kind of tool here. But in the laboratory, we know that when they face a problem, for example, where they need a hook to extract food, they actually make a hook when some other shape of tool would not work. So they really seem to be able to do this kind of planning. Similarly, when we give them a task in which they need to collect one kind of tool, say of a given length, to pick up another one, that can be used to pick up yet another one, that kind of complication, then they are capable of doing it in the lab. And if you think of how you would program an autonomous machine to do this, you couldn't do it without some kind of um, building enrichment of the reinforcement experience. Just purely repeating what works doesn't take you to the end because the animal has never, these are trial unique things where they've never done these complete sequences. So they have to do something equivalent to what one would call planning. But I resist as much as I can to use words which are heavily laden with meaning like planning or understanding or insight when all they are doing is calming our anxiety about not knowing what the animal is doing by putting it a label. Mm -hmm. So, yes, they do some planning in terms of the behavior they do anticipates the problem rather than well, if, acting by consequences. But before we, we, we sort of get into the planning bit, I mean, you, you have gone through quite a series of experiments to really document in detail 
the tool use that these crows are, are capable of and, and how they can generalize these. So what, what are the what are the key features of their tool use that, that stand out in, in your mind? Well, the, the first one, one I was anticipating a second ago is that not everything they do is contained in any obvious way in the experience they had before. It does appear as if we need some kind of model by which the animal does what, let's say, the person in the street would call understanding of the problem. And I um, don't have a better label for it, but at the same time, I'm aware of the difficulties of using such. Now, the animal sees a problem and produces a solution that it has never experienced before. It's not just repeating with greater frequency what has worked. But on a trial unique basis, it's solving problems one after another. That's a common feature. At the same time, we find that they need knowledge, which in many cases is completely logical to solve it. I can give you one, uh, one study, for example. Um, it was shown in other corvids by colleagues in Cambridge that rooks are capable of discovering how to drop stones in an instrument to dislodge a magnetically held platform to release a reward. Um, so that was extraordinary in itself, but the, the Cambridge rooks had done this task by being first trained to drop stones accidentally. They could see that, and then they could innovate by picking up stones from a distance and bringing it there. Mm -hmm. So what we wondered is how could these animals know that a stone would actually dislodge the magnet without having an experience of how the apparatus worked. So what we did was to give different groups of animals either experience with dislodging the magnet by pecking directly at it or, or not. And we placed them without any previous experience of stones dropping in front of the machine and the ones that knew how the how the magnetic box operated could solve the problem, could innovate by mm -hmm. bringing the keys like the rooks have done. But the ones that didn't know that contingency just looked at it and couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. So you, you can innovate, but you have to build on partial knowledge. Would and you call it scaffolding? Is it a scaffold that you... Well, but I would call it that, but self-scaffolding in okay. the sense mm -hmm. that the animal is constructing on the basis of partial elements of behavior, which is perhaps not surprising mm -hmm. because animals don't have any reason to understand a machine without having some possibility of mm -hmm. interacting with it, and in this case, a, a delivery box. But now, don't we also face a challenge here because we look at the task and it looks really complex, but in some sense, there's also an invariant in all these tasks because it's always retrieving a food item from, a, let's say, a tube-like structure, right? the, the, which is in some sense a condition for which these animals might have been optimized because that's how they have to eat, find their food in the trees where they live. Mm -hmm. So maybe to us it looks very complex, but maybe for these crows it all looks like the same problem, that they always solve it the same way, which is get, get a stick, get a stick-like get a stick -like, uh, object and start poking in that hole. Yeah. No, I, I, this is not an accurate description of what's going on. Um, I, I have different lines of argument here. One is that not all our experiments are about extracting food. In some of them, we give the animals um, unknown, potentially threatening objects, and uh, rather than touching them immediately, 
with their beaks, they pick up a stick and touch them at a distance. So they use tools to acquire knowledge about the world in which they are, in addition to using them to extract food. That's one line of argument. Another is that the tasks actually are extremely different in that some of them require selection of the right tool that would go through a hole, for example. We give them uh, food uh, in a tube which has different holes and natural twigs that have to be sculptured to the right diameter in order to pass through the hole. They can do that. Or they have to choose the right length. Or they have to push as opposed to pull. And they, they learn these kind of things. Um, there are many, many different uh, topographies of the problem that they face. No, for instance, Alex, and this, I could still argue for the sake of it yeah. that each of these examples you give me, I could decompose in terms of, of, of a stereotype behavioral pattern that is modulated in some way. Right? I could say, well, the, you know, the, the also during evolution, they have learned to not approach snakes too quickly, so you always use a stick to do that. But that's a very discreet, well-defined situation where they do it. So, so what, what, what is the common feature of all these tasks that makes you believe that you really have to think about a fairly rich, rich internal model and insight, right? as opposed to, let's say, a more, also if you want a more <clears throat> behaviorist decomposition in more stereotype reactive behaviors? Well, um, I'm hesitant about this question you're asking because um, on one hand, you tell me that those these tasks are uh, very similar and then you say that they all decompose mm -hmm. onto many different elements. I wonder what kind of human behavior cannot be decomposed also Absolutely. in that particular Absolutely. way. It's a so, typical behaviorist challenge, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, and so uh, I think... I would start by saying that the very diversity of problems that they can solve and the fact that they can solve trial unique uh, problems with different um, components um, is an indication that is something, the model we need is richer. Mm -hmm. I'm still completely in agreement with you, and I said that from the beginning today, that I'm not after finding a nucleus that we are going to call mind and we're going to say we can't go no further. Mm -hmm. This is it. The animal, we come to this point and from then on the animal thinks. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's not what I hope to do. What I hope to right. do is um, to find a sufficiently rich description of the behavior of the animals and the problems they solve that we do it algorithmically. I don't think that the basic principles of, of Combining associative learning, all forms, uh, you know, instrumental, opera, uh, and Pavlovian conditioning, are going to be sufficient mm -hmm. for this. Um, but we wrote that already. We know that rats learn about the temporal location of stimuli, even if they precede uh, contingencies. We know that uh, the pigeons can form concepts of a very high level. They can um, uh, decode. For example, uh, some of the Japanese work, um, Watanabe and others, that show that they can distinguish a uh, cubist from an impressionist painting, mm -hmm. even with paintings that have, have never seen before, right. simply by being trained with those categories of stimuli. Or we can think of the classic uh, Tolman experiments around the cognitive map, showing latent learning of very complex internal representations. Right? E exactly, absolutely, <laughs> yes. As, as you know, some of the mm, people who have developed more sophistication in reinforcement learning, like Sutton and Barto and that kind of people, have actually shown that some of the Tolmian type 
of learning could be reproduced by some enhancement to reinforcement learning. But um, my personal experience is, um, yes, some can, but some is not quite plausible in mm -hmm. terms of being the way the animal does right. it, mm -hmm. but I don't have a better alternative. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think to some extent in, in, in psychology and uh, animal behavior, there is, is a little bit of an assumption that uh, uh, the relatively easy thing to do is association learning and relatively hard thing to do is planning. Um, and that kind of came out of behaviorism. And then the criticism was that, well, all these great human behaviors that we do can't be explained by that. But then in AI, people discovered very quickly that actually some aspects of planning are relatively easy to do. So things like means ends analysis was uh, an early discovery by Herb Simon. You could program this in a computer as long as you had the right decomposition of the problem space, which we can come back to. But I mean, so coming from at this from the point of view of robotics, it's sometimes a little bit hard for me to understand why biologists are so reluctant to say, well, means ends analysis is something that an animal brain might be doing because it, it, uh, from the point of view of the computational problem, it's perhaps not such a, a difficult challenge as some of the other things that our brains do really well. Yes, I, I agree with you. But I think that when you say biologists, I think that some biologists are excessively tolerant of such explanations and other biologists are ex excessively reluctant to use them. And um, I'm not saying that uh, I'm in the just uh, middle because I, I don't... I couldn't possibly say that. But the point is to add each process to the extent that you can test it and um, test its properties experimentally and model it and that kind of thing. So associative learning for me is a good candidate on the first line of battle, not because it's easier necessarily, because in many cases we don't understand how some of this happened, but because we know a lot about it and we know that it explains a lot of the data satisfactorily. You can get the right parameters, you explain many different kinds of things. Uh, while um, planning or insight are descriptive processes that don't by themselves link to anything that you can actually immediately quantify and, and simulate as a process or write in the form of code. Um, because of that, in as much as a hypothesis has a reassuring ring to it, I don't favor it as a first thing. I would like, I prefer hypotheses that actually stick their neck out and say, well, if it is this, then this is what you should be seeing. And but so, if you look at um, some of the early AI, which was doing this sort of search space techniques and uh, means ends analysis, and people like Herb Simon were saying, well, look, let's see how people, uh, not Herb Simon, but experimentalists saying, let's look at how people solve, say, the missionary and cannibals problem, which is a means ends analysis type task where you have to, 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 to solve a, uh, a difficult leap which, which involves not taking the obvious next step. And so there are experimental techniques there for trying to identify when people, uh, humans, are using these kind of planning techniques. So uh, I'm just uh, trying to, to wonder whether th there is maybe more a positive agenda that we could have for, you know, let, let's assume more of, about bird cognition and see if we can design experiments that, that really push uh, 
push the possibilities of what they're doing in terms of uh, identifying how there are similarities between what they're doing and maybe what humans are doing. An example might be uh, analogical reasoning. You know, can you can you develop a, a way of uh, designing, maybe this has been done already, you design one apparatus uh, which involves a sequence of moves uh, that the, uh, the bird might uh, discover. And then you design something which is visually very different but there's some deep homology between the sequence of actions that you did over here that you can use over here i mean has, has that been done or is it is it realistic to think about trying to do that well it has been claimed to have been done in some cases um i am completely sympathetic to your view that we should have a positive agenda in that respect and trying to see well if the animals are using what in AI we call planning, say, then uh, we should see these properties or it should also be capable of doing this task that we wouldn't have thought otherwise. So it's not that uh, these hypotheses uh, or even things uh, like, uh, for example, episodic memory or uh, that kind of, of property, I don't think that they should be left as the last resort, but they should be used when they can make new predictions that actually enrich the way you tackle experimentally the problem. So for analogical reason, reasoning, in some cases, there have been experiments, I, I wouldn't go now into the details, where uh, certain tasks have been solved by animals, and the immediate claim has been that this actually is compatible with the animals using um, analogical reasoning here. Well, yes, in many cases they are compatible, but they are also compatible with other things that we understand better. It doesn't mean that they are more likely to be used by the animals, um, but we understand it better. So I am interested, for example, in trying to see whether one could understand the development of these capabilities. Because, for instance, when animals resolve novel problems, they very clearly resort to some library, some database of experience that they have that has been informally acquired through interaction with the different affordances of the world. And we are testing adult animals. We don't know how they acquired that sort of database of relationships. And, and then they come and solve something that novel. So how do they do it? Is it because they understand what's going on at the physical level? Or is it simply because they are generalizing from their uh, long-term experience? But not to... So before we now solve this this dilemma between, let's say, the decomposition view or the more representationalist internal view, maybe we can look at a bit more of the experiments that you have performed. And one of them, which I thought was very interesting, was where you compare um, the crows with, with these chaos. This is a, a yeah. parrot from, from New, New Zealand, Zealand right? Yeah. Um, where you also actually got some ideas about the enormous individual differences and I think that's another aspect we should not lose sight of when we try to make some categorical decision on okay they solve it like this or like that because give, if, if it's true that there's a large individual variability it could even happen that within the species you cover this whole range and there's not an exclusive choice to be made right why not this is also a possibility so so in these experiments in this com this comparative experiment in the crows and the chaos what, what did you really observe what were the key observations there well we 
what we did in that particular example that you referred to is offer a battery of different tests and trying to see whether the capacity to jump from one form of solution to the next and discovering the next one was um, characteristics of the of the species and uh, we did find that to some extent but on the other hand when we examined the reasons for success in certain tasks we found that um, what you have to attribute to understanding of the physical features of the problem could be severely restricted by other differences between the individuals. For example, their proclivity to explore the environment in either a tactical modality, uh, uh, sorry, a haptic modality or a visual modality. Because certain problems cannot be discovered visually and others which involve action at a distance are more difficult to discover by touching alone. And <clears throat> differences which one would call non-cognitive get amplified into difference in problem solving and tasks which mm -hmm. overall are designed for their cognitive interests. Yeah, because these chaos are more haptic, right, in their interaction with yes. the world. Yes. While, while the crows are a bit more at a distance. That's right. At a distance. Um, yeah. But then, so in my mind, surprisingly, you found these chaos were overall better in this battery of tasks than the crows. So what meant exactly that, that distinction? Yeah, well, the, the crows were better at the task that they are well known for, which is to use uh, objects to act on target at a distance, basically to use a tool to retrieve the... Although the, the task was new, it had the basic structure of what they are known to be good at. The Kias could do better <coughs> any task in which direct manipulation of the object with their <coughs> beaks and feet was uh, an advantage. And um, if, if you were to take naively the results of the experiment in a quantitative way, yes, the Kias scored more highly than New Caledonian crows, but we have left behind, I hope, long ago, this notion of a scalar uh, categorization of intelligence in between species because they are designed to solve different problems mm -hmm. and they basically have uh, different capabilities and, and motivational differences cause that. I should say that you mentioned uh, this is a very important problem when you're dealing with intelligent animals. I'm using the term here loosely to say one that uses a lot of its own experience to solve problems. Um, almost by very definition from the beginning of the task, you are expecting different personal histories, different individual histories to accumulate and lead to different adult behavior um, because you know, nobody can guarantee what um, individuals are going to do so. If you look at uh, the diversity of skills in humans and you ask who ends up being a professor of Chinese and who ends up being um, an engineer designing robots, for example, or a neuroscientist, it's very difficult to know what was inherently different in the alleles of different genes that these individuals had and what simply were contingencies in their personal mm -hmm. experience that have not been formalized right. and cannot be. And the same happens with intelligent animals. Mm -hmm. they, they have. Sure. But what I found interesting about your interpretation of this difference or similarity between the chaos and the crows, there you say, look, um, they have been specialized for different kinds of tasks, so differences should not be overinterpreted. 
But on other, if, if I look at your result, I, my interpretation, I could give you an alternative interpretation, is actually they are able to solve the same task. And in the Simon and Newell view, that might be the same expression of a general intelligence, if you want, where anything can become a task. However, their performance is sort of modulated by the specifics of their skeletal muscle system, their training history, the, the niche that they sort of have adapted for. Yeah. And for the example you showed where where the chaos were pretty good in dealing with, with a little window that was in the index mental box, while the crows could not. And the difference being that these chaos, since they're so haptic, they, they chew on everything and they touch everything. So they, in that way, they can discover this window while these crows are just perching somewhere and looking down upon the task and never figure it out. But, but that would mean actually that coming from these very different morphologies as a bird, being controlled by a, by a fairly similar brain allows them to solve the same task. It's just modulated by their physical instantiation, the bodies that they have. Is that a reasonable interpretation? I think it's perfectly possible. Hmm. Um, and, and this is something that we would like to tease apart in, the, in, in a whole program of experiments, exactly. How, how much of what we see is just modulation of a very general ability to say, for example, represent uh, the problem in some symbolic kind of way that allows you to explore um, virtually mm -hmm. different solutions and then implement right. them. And to what extent um, they, they, they don't have this capability, they are very dedicated. We know that humans are not completely um, uh, equally capable of any content-free mm -hmm. problems. I mean, right. they, our ability to solve logical problems depends... But now there's an interesting consequence, right? Because you also use the word intelligence loosely. Yeah. And intelligence is often seen as a reasoning capability uh, based on a, on a mysterious, mysterious G factor that recently Adrian Owen and others have shown might decompose again in other properties such as working memory and rule learning and so on. But now we have to see that if we want to insist on the notion of intelligence, we also have to include morphology. So doesn't that actually imply that we might as well forget about the notion of intelligence because it starts to become the whole universe? Well, um, we try sometimes, so it's very hard to leave it behind. Um, really? I, for example, um, we did the exercise in our laboratory to, for different periods to ban certain words <laughs> and see whether we could manage that. And one of the words was understanding. So could we go on on our lives separate uh, replacing the word understanding by what we really mean in any way and um we we failed miserably we had to r bring it back um and accept to use it it's the same as doing evolutionary biology without teleology mm. um, we know that teleology is a shorthand for the action of natural selection and the different variation of genes but then if you if you don't really say what you know, what the oak tree tries to do is to make as many acorns as it possibly can. So you are not making any subjective attribution, <laughs> but <laughs> but you are using a notion of of, of goal of of, of target, mm -hmm. which is for natural selection and not for the individual. Mm -hmm. And the same kind of thing we need to use for animal behavior all the right. time. Yeah, it's also the straitjacket in which behaviorism tried to put itself without much uh, success. That, that's right, right yeah, yes. Exactly. Just, it just, it ends up, it, it brings you to study only boring problems because <laughs> right. they are only the problems you can formalize verbally mm -hmm. at right. that time. So you have to be a little bit more loose, but at mm -hmm. the same time, not have the illusion 
that if you say that an animal solves the problem because it understood it, you have explained anything. Mm -hmm. Right. But now, so another animal that, that you described was, was this, uh, the kakatu, this yes. Indonesian kakatu, where actually you start to look at a very different aspect. So first it was more like, what kind of problems can they solve? What kind of tools can they use and, and actually construct, which already is amazing. But now with this kakatu, you went, went again a step further to say, well, how many steps can they actually chain together to solve a complex problem that they actually would never encounter in nature because you built some strange contraption that even for humans might be a bit of a challenge initially uh, that where they had to sort of uh, go through different steps to get a food reward. So, so what was the key insight and the key motivation behind that experiment? Well, in that particular experiment, um, the animals had to do a series of actions um, up to five actions in this case. Uh, and when I say actions, uh, they were very different in, in what actually the motor intervention had to be uh, before reaching a, a target. In this case, of, it was a food reward. But the interesting problem was that the sequence could not... The, the, none of the components of the sequence was reinforced until the whole sequence was done and in the right order. Mm -hmm. And that means that uh, the animal could not improve progressively by reinforcement of individual actions. But what it could do is to improve by, in a sense, perceiving the solution of anything that shortened the chain, that was a physical chain of physical devices engaging one another, anything that make it shorter was indeed progress towards achieving the goal. And that particular experiment did not require planning as such, but it required the capture of experience with a notion of goal directedness, of, of sort of trying to achieve something. But the critical part of that study was that once the animals had learned to solve the problem of this sequence, we did controls in which we removed elements uh, internal to the chain. And so now the question was, what has the animal learned? Is it going to go to the old beginning as required, or is it going to go to the first element after the removed one, so that now the problem they face is shorter? And what we found is statistical evidence that they can do the latter. And, and that means that somehow, that is, they do the properly functional thing of skipping parts of the chain which are now being rendered irrelevant mm -hmm. by the transformation of the task. Right. And what that means is that the animals are, and now I'm going to use carefully my words, the animals are sensitive to the physical interactions between the objects. Mm -hmm. um, if I'm tempted to say that they understand the physical interaction between the objects, but as you see, I'm avoiding it. Right. So <laughs> they somehow they behave as if they could eliminate parts of the task which have become irrelevant by a modification that they can see, but um, they haven't experienced mm -hmm. before. So that in your mind, would mean they have some sort of model of, of the overall problem in which they can selectively perform adaptations? Say, okay. I think so, but right. we, do, we really, I mean, just being conservative. I mean, right. we, we don't know how they do it, but yes. we know that we can eliminate some classes of explanations mm -hmm. which are based on very simple... But now, what is interesting here is that from a standard Thorndikean and also reinforcement learning point of view, 
which in general I find a very impoverished way to think about the world and certainly biology, um, you would have to think about the direct reinforcement signal to first identify a step in the chain and then to link it together. So in your task, that's not possible because I really have to go through the whole chain, through all the steps from beginning to the end before I get my reward. So then you could argue, well, there might be some backward chaining. That means I have a memory representation of this. This is one way in which I could talk. I do step A. Step A is committed to a working memory or to an, uh, and then I do step B and step B is inserted in working memory and until I get my reward and then I have all these elements in my memory because, ah, they all belong together. This is how I can solve the problem. Alternatively, you could say, well, maybe Thorndike is still right with this law of effect, but the instruction signal is not external. You don't get this food reward or the worm or whatever they get, a nut. You have like an intrinsic motivational signal. Aha, it's great to solve a problem. And that's your rewarding signal that helps you to glue the steps of the chain together. So which of these two interpretations have your... No, I'm, I'm happier with the second. I would imagine that I don't think we could make the first one work mm -hmm. in this particular task um, because the animals cannot solve the problem backwards and they have not experienced the final mm -hmm. elements of the task at all at the time that they start working on the other side of the chain. And so a backwards reinforcement mm -hmm. procedure would never take them to the end. So, But somehow you have to give the system... A method to progress, to to even if it's modeling it mentally, to know what is an improvement and then build on that. Mm -hmm. You may call that reinforcement or virtual mm -hmm. reinforcement if you want. It doesn't involve the physical. Mm -hmm. um, but that's interesting, right? Because hidden in that, you you have a definition or, or, or a notion of let's say subtask completion. <laughs> Right. Yeah. There must be something very identifiable about the event so that I can drive this intrinsic signal. So what could that be? Well, in the case of, of this particular task where you have different physical devices engaging one another, if you imagine an image representation of that in, in your mind, you can see that you could visualize the downstream device as being movable when something, you know, a poke in the wheel has mm -hmm. been removed. And so if that is blocking it, if I remove it, then the wheel can turn, mm -hmm. uh, something like that. So you need to have a notion of that sort of physical okay. interaction. So you're saying, this is actually quite a strong assumption, which is very interesting because you're saying, well, actually the animal has to have some sort of understanding uh, of the whole task of this whole machine that it has to deal with and it's then within that model that says aha i did step a now this well is, it's important that in this particular task i don't want to over interpret the data uh, or, or even give them that impression at all in this particular task they could progress by rattling at random mm -hmm. everything but Whenever they achieve a movement, they have to remember it perfectly the nec and, and, and mm -hmm. next time do it. And so, and that way, like a ratchet, they get closer and closer so that one day they come in and do one A, B, C, D, E, mm -hmm. and then they get the fruit. So it doesn't require that they understand the physics of it to reach the solution for the first time. Mm -hmm. However, when you modify the task, 
you transform it by altering the order of things or removing one thing. If that was the way they learned it, and that was all that is stored mm -hmm. in the mind of the animal, then uh, it would not go zoom in what is the right movement now mm -hmm. after the transformation of the task. And that's what they do. And the implication of this mm -hmm. is that they may achieve it mm -hmm. by something which is not very systematic and based on understanding and, and the logic of mm -hmm. physical interactions. But once they have done it, they are sensitive to the actual mm -hmm. physical needs of the task right. to create a novel solution the next time over. But imagine I build a machine where I have the same elements. I have this, this, this bolt I have to turn and so on. But the linking to the next step, which is, let's say, something they have to unplug or something they have to pull, is not mechanically identifiable. I, I do that in the background through a computer, let's say. But the, but the order stays the same. Would you believe the, the cockatoo would be able to solve that problem equally well if it cannot recognize the physical linking, the mechanical linking of the steps? Um, the true answer is I don't know, but I don't think is um, I think it, it connects with some experiments that have been done in chimps, in children, and to some extent also in birds, in which you create, you rig up devices so that the movements that you cause are physically intuitive and logical or not. And you see whether the animal has greater difficulties mm -hmm. when the action is not what you might expect from normal physical laws. So we can do some of that, mm -hmm. and we indeed we, we try, but I can't at the moment answer your okay. thing. Maybe so um, we should build a magical machine for the bird to take apart. Yeah? That's right, yeah. Uh, to some extent, your, your task um, is complicated because uh, it, there are uh, physical manipulation aspects to it, which are quite challenging for, for birds. Um, but listening to you describe it, it, it reminded me of some you know, cognitive tasks that, for instance, development psychologists like Piaget developed his serial order task, which was to take a, a pile of sticks of different length and, and lay them out in order of ascending size. And then many people have looked at that in, in child development uh, or transitive intra, in, inference tasks uh, that have been investigated in children, also in, in uh, chimps. Uh, is it, uh, I mean, have these been investigated with birds as well, these kinds of more cognitive tasks that don't give them that physical challenge so much? Yes, yes, they have. Um, for example, uh, the work by Alan, Alan Camille and, and his colleagues ha on what you mentioned, of transitive inference, is very interesting because what they show is that um, some kind of physical transfer, uh, transitive inferences required to solve some tasks, for example, um, if you learn that A... I'm trying to reconstruct now. If you have that A is bigger than, um, I don't want to do a misrepresentation of the task. Um, the, the point I'm raising is when you compare species which have a complex hierarchical society yeah. and some which have a more egalitarian one, what you find is that the, uh, the, they can transfer that skill to tasks which have the same logical structure but different content. Yeah, yeah. So rather than having a modular device, 
just capable of solving uh, the social problem they have. They have the general, uh, they have developed that. Now, have they developed this because they've experienced it repeatedly and they just abstract through their history this problem that the others have not? Or do they have a um, pre-programmed, inherited logical module that allows mm -hmm. them to do um, that kind of inference? That we need to do developmental studies to test. You have to see what happens if you raise animals with different level of complexity and see what kind of logical tasks they can mm. solve later. So now, you did say that um, these crows use tools and cockatoos do not um, in the wild. Can you really be sure about that? No. Okay. I said that uh, crows are very well known for their extensive use of tools in the wild and cockatoos are not known to use tools. Okay. Now, if they were as intense tool users as the crows are, we would know. But they have not been studied in the wild, actually, in greater detail. So mm. uh, there is, uh, I would never claim lack of an ability or someone is mm -hmm. going to, to find it. Right, out. exactly. If they have the skill, why wouldn't they do it? Mm -hmm. In the case of capuchin monkeys, they were shown for many years to have um, great capability for the use of tools in the laboratory. And people kept repeating that they don't do it in the wild until some groups of researchers found them hmm. doing it in the wild and doing it a very sophisticated kind of tool, right. use, which is now hmm. a, a classic study. So, so in your torture conclusions, at some point you made the point, uh, we play chess be because we are bad at it. So yeah. what are you trying to, this is an well, intriguing point, statement. <laughs> uh, the point I was trying to make is not that we play chess. I, I, I was saying we, we are impressed by performance in chess and, 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 and people use chess as I, I think this idea is borrowed from, from Chomsky, it's not, it's not my own, but I, I just can't locate at the moment where I read it, but okay. I remember it labeled clearly as mm -hmm. coming from reading that. But basically, if you compare something like uh, the linguistic skills of humans and the speed with which we acquire it at an early age with extreme poverty of data, although not absence of data, as it has sometimes been claimed, but poverty of data, we very quickly learn extraordinarily complex tasks, while chess has a very limited set of rules and we nevertheless don't become half as good at doing it. And, and there are great individual differences in chess playing ability, while there are perhaps less differences or we don't use them as a measure mm. of capability um, for producing um, normal human speech. Mm -hmm. So all I was saying is that we have to be careful that we may end up using things which are particularly outside the range of competencies of a species mm -hmm. as interesting, particularly because the species is bad at it. Right. Um, Although not everyone is a poet. Not everybody is <laughs> a poet, no, right. indeed. So but then um, you made another important point in, in your conclusions which has a lot to do with, the, with sort of the comparative aspect of this like what the all, what the things we learn about birds how would it generalize to other species and you made this point about the relationship between body size and brain weight that that you found sort of speaking to this point so what what what's the message there yes the point i was trying to make is uh, we 
We know that absolute brain size is not a very rich indicator of capability, but on the other hand, um, it's hard to believe that the absolute size is entirely irrelevant uh, of a brain. And so, but basically, by people playing around with different ways of plotting uh, brains, different and sizes of brains, scale them in different forms, they found a way in which humans do particularly well. Um, and that has stuck. And this is actually to look at the relation between human brain size relative to what you would expect from a mammal mm -hmm. of that size. And you find that the residual on that overall correlation favors humans very dramatically. Um, we don't have the biggest brains in mm -hmm. nature, but we have the bigger residual with respect to animals of our size. Mm -hmm. um, all I was pointing out is that if you look at the whole of birds, and particularly if you looked at passerines, the area in this plot of brain size versus body mass that you have is very similar. So birds tend to be smaller than at least the larger mammals, but for a given size, they have similarly sized brains. But within that, what you find is that the parrots and the crows, which happen to be the groups of animals for which we have greater evidence of these cognitively difficult uh, tasks, um, are also the ones which have greatest residual with respect to the overall regression in mm -hmm. the birds. So all I was saying is that, um, yes, there are differences between species. Not everybody is equally smart. Maybe parrots and crows are really... Um, capable of greater general uh, logical processing of mm -hmm. the world and they have something more of a G factor than, than others but uh, as a biologist I wouldn't jump to that mm -hmm. until I exclude the direct link with their ecology and, Right, yeah. but now with birds, also crows, they're one of the few animal species where people have shown that they do have something like self-consciousness, right? So you can stick it's a typical task right that you stick something to the body you put the animal in front of a mirror and apparently yeah. they will they will take it off so do you do you buy these kind of experiments and do you think that something like conscious self-consciousness is important in the kind of mental operations we're talking about for these tasks or you see this as completely irrelevant i I, I buy the experiments in terms of empirical results what i don't think is fair is to uh, jump from the ability to address behavior to your own body on the basis of external stimuli to some philosophical notion of, uh, of selfness and identity. You could be trained by watching mirrors to um, identify self by the contingency between your movements and the stimulus that you're seeing outside. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit more difficult than looking at your own hand. You are looking at your hand in the mirror, but still you are learning mm -hmm. from from your experience that... But that seems an interesting transition because with the problem-solving behavior, you were very much at the end of, okay, there's a complex internal model in which you perform operations. Well, if we now talk about self, you seem to try to reduce it away to simple externalized stereotype behaviors. Why is there not a model of the self then as well as much as there's one of a complex task? Well, Paul, if you if you are insinuating that I'm contradictory, mm -hmm. I'm uh, quite willing to accept it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I can't help but um, reflecting the different realities that we observe, that being uh, having a different degree of confidence in what we can infer. Um, I don't think is 
it's fair to describe my previous statements and saying that I was a kind of defending a highfalutin interpretations whenever mm -hmm. um, um, a simple one would do, or the opposite. No, no, I, I, did, I wasn't I'm, trying to say yeah, that. I'm closing to the, closer to the Kilcher one, but often we fail, mm -hmm. and then um, we have to elaborate on yeah, that. My key point was, in the problem-solving, it's clear that, that you do assume that there's an internal model, which is completely reasonable. And you could say, okay, it's an internal model of the task. Yeah. While in this, the self-oriented behaviors, you might equally say there is an internal model of self. Why not? But you seem yeah. to sort of not yes. to want to go that way. I'm hesitant because I don't find the evidence of the mirror self-recognition task um, sufficiently compelling mm -hmm. to tell me that the animal has to have what we normally understand by the notion of the self, the notion right. of agency. I believe that the uh, it's natural that the club of uh, those that can do it can only grow, it can get smaller. So <laughs> right. people start by showing that it only happens in humans, mm -hmm. and they say that this defines humans. Then they find that this also happens in chimps, and then next they find that it also happens in, in, in some corvids, mm -hmm. in magpies, or... or and right. then um, they keep up, and then eventually they show that it works in fish. Mm -hmm. And now they have a problem. Uh, do, do fish also have this uh, virtue that mm -hmm. we call um, you know, identity, self-conscious mm -hmm. self-recognition? Or the experiment didn't require that in the first place when right. we saw it in humans. Mm -hmm. um, uh, th th this is a very common process. And, sure. Uh, yeah. So, Alex, to finish up, two questions. Um, it's clear. It's clear that that you have a broad experience in in this domain, studying animal behavior over over many years, having deep insights in in the capabilities of many of these animal species. Um, so, what would be Alex's law that we should adhere to in the study of animal cognition? Um, I would say that to. I'm very Timbergian in this, and you know, I think that the the advice of or the the, the way that Nico Timbergian in the 60s, in 63, structured the program of ethology is still a very good program. You know, he said when you look at any behavior, but you could apply to any biological trait, don't think that a single level of explanation is sufficient. So don't use exclusively mechanistic interpretations. This is the way they do it and satisfy with that, nor purely normative ones. This is why they do it this way and satisfy with that. I think an interaction between um, normative and mechanistic approaches is absolutely essential. Mm. But another thing that is essential is to use the right level of reductionism. If we were to jump now immediately with our current level of knowledge to the, um, some of the very basic properties of birds' uh, nervous systems, I don't think we would make much progress in the kind of problems we are facing at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, we can still a lot to do by working at the behavior of the animals and making inferences from that, taking the ecology into account, taking evolution into account. But of course, in the end, you do want to reduce one step at a time and go as far as possible to the basic mm -hmm. uh, machinery of how the animals right. achieve it. 
So we should follow some plurality, though, in our, our view on this phenomena. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's one thing I said right at the end in the conversation, in the question time, was that I believe much more in multidisciplinarity than I believe in interdisciplinarity. Mm -hmm. right. What I mean by this is we can't be equally good at everything we do, but we can meet with colleagues mm -hmm. and form teams where everybody is very good at right. a particular mm -hmm. way of looking at and, and in that you also see a clear role for computational and robotics oriented approaches very much so i i really think that um we are um well not fully because here we are doing it but uh, we would be losing and op missing opportunities if we didn't use the the wisdom acquired by people in AI and robotics on what you need to have in a machine to be able to take autonomous decisions and, and to construct novelty in behavior. And we will not use that wisdom to interpret the behavior of animals mm -hmm. that we see doing that, but we have no idea of what process is underlying right. it. Mm -hmm. So I think working together would tell robots, uh, sorry, roboticists, mm -hmm. what kind of problems they may aspire at solving by looking at what mm -hmm. animals can do. And it would tell us how some of these problems can actually be tackled mm -hmm. because they have been tackled even right, exactly. in, in machines mm -hmm. being built. So now five years from now, Tony and I will come visit you in Oxford and we're going to confront you with the prediction you're going to make today. So and we're going to ask you whether it was validated or invalidated in, in this intervening period. So what's the one prediction you really would like to make today and you really would like to, to, to stick to and rigorously investigate over the coming five years. Gosh, Paul, you didn't warn me of this question. <laughs> um, surprise, surprise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, give me a few seconds mm. to uh, say something uh, mm. completely, non-completely trivial. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that the, certainly in my own field, if I can be a little parochial, the behavioral ecology field that evolved out of ethology by uh, moving the swing of interpretation towards purely functional analysis would have moved considerably back in the direction of paying attention to how animals do things. Mm -hmm. So, and that we will, uh, but this is a prediction about science, not about animals, so I may be cheating a little bit. But I'm saying that what is going to happen is that people are going to realize that making purely uh, normative functional interpretations without looking at how animals actually achieve it is uh, becomes sterile in the end. Mm -hmm. So we need right. that. Wonderful. Alex Kachanik, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you. It was a pleasure. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.